0: I always like kind of go back over my life from nine till now, where wherever now is. I'll go. Wait, which turn did I make? Which what? Yes, did I say? What no did I say that put me forward or put me back or whatever? And you know, I get people who will say to me like, "Yo, you just you seem super determined and like you don't let shit stop you." And I and I usually tell people, I'm friends with fear. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's going to go on the ride with you, so you might as well talk to it and say, "I got you." You know, if you're a parent, you got to kind of like be the one that like tells the kid. Sometimes you pull them gently. Sometimes you push them gently. Sometimes you go, "This is what it is." Right. And I and I started looking at my fears as if it were were a kid, mm. and so I was like, you know what? It's all right to be afraid to do something. If you have a good conversation with yourself, basically telling your fears, I will protect you.
1: Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. Visit www.petechatman.com to get your official director's chair wear, hoodies, hats, jackets, mugs, and other swag. And learn more about your host.
2: All right, folks, welcome to episode 48 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Starring the illustrious Charles Murray, writer, producer, director, showrunner, all them things. Kind of wild, kind of wild, y'all, that I have sat in this chair, or actually, it was a different chair when we began in June of 2020. But I have done this uh, almost 50 times. And I, I salute and shout out and thank everybody that, you know, clicks that link in their Spotify or their Apple Podcasts or YouTube or whatever it, it may be. I thank you for rolling and riding with, with the kid on the podcast. As I tell everybody, it's been therapeutic for me, and I hope therapeutic for you as you get brought behind the scenes, you know, to the bar, to the cafe, to the dinner with different creatives that you may or may not know. But I do hope that the conversations are an opportunity to be a fly on the wall for some information that we can all benefit from. So thank y'all. Episode 49 will be next week, obviously, and. 50 after that, and I'll try and think of something worthy of being number 50 feels like a milestone, but we'll see if I'm creative enough to do that. As far as life, things have been, things have been you know, well, obviously we've got the strike going on, no end in sight, DGA negotiations are going on right now, nothing new to report what will be new will be in the news so when it's new it will be news but you know still supporting all the writers out there striking making it clear that they have a have a have a value that is not being met so you know support 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 y'all solidarity now this brother that we have this week hails from Gary Indiana and if you know one thing about Gary Indiana you should know that hardworking people arise. The Jackson family is from Gary, Indiana. If you've never seen the house that 10 people lived in, you know, seven kids were raised in or however many, to, to see what came from from this one little house in Gary, Indiana, I feel like they actually lived on Jackson Street because I, I feel like I'm remembering a song called 2300 Jackson Street, but that's my that's my, my long-term memory that I'm going in. Somebody double-check me. Let me know if I'm right. But Charles Murray is also from Gary, Indiana, and he has made his way from there to Hollywood, where currently he is the showrunner on Outer Range, which is in season two, I believe. He's also a writer and director best known for Sons of Anarchy, Third Watch, Luke Cage. He wrote, produced... And directed a feature film in 2013, Things Never Said. He also just did another one in 2022 called The Devil You Know. So he's got a lot to share. He he came up the ranks. He he figured it out along the way. And these are you know kind of my favorite guests to talk to because they have such a plethora of experience in trying to figure out, well, how do I get to where I want to go? And sometimes where they want to go evolves as they move through their journey. So we'll get back to Charles in a minute. I, I spoke to a great group over the weekend that Tiffany Yvonne Cox connected me to. She is a wonderful actress who was in Reasonable Doubt. The organization that I spoke to is called Career Activate. And it was an opportunity for me to talk to a variety of actors in New York, LA, and, and points in between about how to take advantage of time during the strike and also how to, you know, remain nimble as they move through their career and try and carve out the career that they want. One thing that was kind of a guiding principle in that conversation that I'll share with y'all comes from the introduction in my book Transitions: Director's Journey and Motivational Handbook. I am holding it up for those who are watching this on YouTube. You see it for those who are listening here. Here's the pages. That's the pages. That's over almost 300 pages of information I hope you can benefit from. But in the introduction, I I asked myself in 2014 three questions. What's not working? What if everything I'm doing is wrong? And lastly, how can I pivot? And those the, the soul searching prompted by those three questions is really what I credit for Moving from doing branded content and, you know, self-funded projects that were few and far between because I didn't have much money to getting to this point of of almost 60 episodes of television and continuing to to go further down that path. The idea, though, is, you know, what's not working is that I just feel any creative needs to be honest and self-reflective enough to look at where they are, where they want to go, and... Try and identify where the gap is. What's the moat that you have to cross? You know, what drawbridge do you have to make in order to get to where you want to go? So that's what's not working. What if everything I'm doing is wrong is kind of a sub question from what's not working, but it is kind of dramatically presented to prompt you or to at least make you consider that, You might like, you may be doing all the wrong things. Now, it's very unlikely that you are. I can't imagine that every category of your movements are are off target. But if you have that point of view, if you're willing to consider that everything might be wrong, then I think you are willing to get very surgical in, in analyzing what parts of your craft are being best nurtured and which parts need a little bit more watering. So, you know, to me there's the the art of it, right? Like there's literally the 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 art and the craft of what you do. For me, that's directing, that's knowing camera, editing, you know, pacing, music, all of those things. But then there's also am I executing on the projects? How am I in the room when I'm having meetings? How am I on set when I'm not, you know, giving a direction or 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 designing a shot, but it's the other 12 hours a day where I'm having to interact with people. What's my social media presence look like? Like all of these things are part of the ecosystem of you as a a creative. And so what's not working is designed to make you really address all of those. that's my dog Motown coming in to make sure we're good in here if you heard the footsteps. And lastly, how can I pivot is the end result. You've asked what's not working, You've questioned, what if everything you're doing is wrong? And then the answer is how you pivot. What do you do to get out of the situation or 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 place you are now and move toward where you want to be? For me, it was making a short film that was reflective of where I was talent-wise in 2015. And that would be reflective of my voice. I had been doing so many videos for so many different companies that you know, I don't think people were aware of how I viewed the world. And so I, I I made that short film, and I really worked to learn how TV was made, and I learned how to be a better nurturer of my community and my network. And I continue to ask myself these questions every every month to open the door to to the way my mind works. You know, in in the fifty plus episodes of TV I've done, you know i still haven't done a pilot right i am pushing actively to get to get one so i'm having those meetings i've also had a, a couple pilot deals that did get made that where the projects never went through but i still haven't yet to take one to camera and even within the ones that i did get i'll still say well how what's the nature of those jobs what were the relationships how did that come together and I can always identify the personal relationship that kind of helped close that deal or cross that moat. So what do I need to do to have an increased opportunity to do pilots? I need to know more people, but I also need to direct more high profile shows and shows that executives and other creatives look at as premium, visually compelling dependent upon the director to execute what the writers have designed, you know, I need to do more of those shows. So if you look at what I've been doing the last year or two, that's, that's been the goal. And there's a whole formula as to how that was able to happen and working with my reps and watching shows and and seeking to have meetings because I'm really interested in a show and then coming in and having that meeting and doing well in that meeting. You know, there's a cocktail of things that are involved here, but Those three questions never go out the window. Right now, with this time during the strike, I'm actually working on two screenplays. I finally have the time to do it. These are not being funded by anything. These are all on spec. These are my ideas. But now I feel like I'd be remiss to have this unwanted free time, but very much needed free time so we can get better deals for all the writers, the directors, the actors, I'd be remiss to come out of this free time without something that moves the needle forward for the for the goals I have. And doing pilots, you know, making feature films is also a part of how you get to pilots because it shows that you can design a world. And quite frankly, I've made two features, but they happened outside of the the arms of Hollywood. And so premium and, and 760 first, you know, for all intents and purposes kind of don't exist for the people who would be hiring me for a feature. So not only am I doing it because I, I want to tell these stories, but I know that they are also a road to getting the pilot. So I've given you a little bit of a window into some of the things that I'm working on. Obviously, you have to appreciate the journey and 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 the process, but I do want everybody listening or reading that book to know that this is an ever-changing thing. It's just something that you always have to monitor, keep your foot on the gas, and never get complacent. So with that, I think we can dive into episode 48 with Charles Murray, and I bet he'll probably touch on more of the same. All right, y'all. I'll see y'all after this.
1: Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one.
2: All right, so everybody, we're welcoming Charles Murray to the podcast. Man, if y'all don't know about this, brother, you about to find out one of those folks that after you listen to this interview, you're going to be like, how didn't I know more? But you're also going to
0: walk away with some, some gems here. So welcome to the show, my man. Thank you, brother. Thank you for having me. I've been watching. I love it. I appreciate you.
2: Likewise, man. So. Man, so much to begin with i i I look at the resume and the credits, and it, it's man, almost every type of job. I, I see you've even been in front of the camera. <laughs> but you know, but but you're you're born in Gary, Indiana, like tell me how you got interested in and in, tell me tell me about
0: growing up and what led to even being in this game. Yeah so, yeah, raised born and raised in Gary, and youngest of five. And when I say youngest," I mean there was a nine year gap between the last one and me, and my old man was in the steel mill. My mm-hmm. mother was worked for this it wasn't a fabric store, it was a lawn, no, it was a laundromat, and then but she was the the in-house sewing lady mm-hmm. And along comes me, and from damn near junk, I was a latchkey kid, you know. Mm. First grade, here's a key, you know kind of thing, and you know the it was it was third grade for me, so <laughs> right you know it, yeah. it was like, help me, this is what you got to do and because my my oldest my oldest my sister was sixteen years older than me, mm-hmm. so they were still in high school, and then by the time I got like you know four or five, five, six, they were out doing what whatever it was they were doing. And so you know, the key was handed to me, and the and the main rule when you're a latchkey kid, take your ass in the house, turn on the TV, lock the door, don't let nobody in. I'll be home. Yeah. Boom. Wait,
2: let me let me ask. Did you have the key around your
0: neck? No. Kept
2: it in no? the car. No. Okay. I,
0: mine wasn't around my neck because that was the safest place to keep it. Yeah. No. I was. I was a, I was a weirdo because like. By the time I was in the second grade, the school wanted said that I should have been in the fifth grade. Wow. Right? So, don't ask me where all of that went. Because, it go <laughs> no. but I was, a, I was like a super left brain kid when I was little. So, you know, my mother would just, like, have conversations straight ahead. So, it was like, don't lose this key. And I was like, all right, bet. You know? Right. And, um, you know, I'd come home, turn the TV on. And it just became the thing. And and because of that, you know, it's, it, I'll jump forward real quick because, you know, when people like look at my IMDb, they go, you're kind of all over the place. And I say, I'm a syndicated television baby. Huh. You know, so on Sundays, I'm starting off with Lone Ranger going to Cisco Kid. You know, this is all Chicago channels you know, Channel 9, Channel 7, you know, by by 2.30, there was a, a show called Family Classics, which showed all these different movies, mm-hmm. like Spencer Tracy in Boys Town or Captain's Courageous or Mickey Rooney and all that other kind of stuff. And then by 10 o'clock, I'm watching Benny Hill. <laughs> I loved Benny Hill, yo. Damn, <laughs> Benny was the man. And then it, you know, it would be, it would be Benny Hill I think it would be Benny Hill Monty Python wow and then by the 1030 movie so maybe it came on earlier but by the 1030 movie channel 9 was showing gangster movies mm-hmm. so that was all in a day right right, right. so i'm like yo this is great <laughs> right. you don't have to tell me you know lock the door and 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 you know don't let anybody in cuz they're going to interrupt my tv watching you know right so, <laughs> so by the time I was nine, I'm sitting with my mom one day and she, she just said, is this all you do? Watch TV? And I went, yeah. And she goes, you ain't got nothing else to do? I said, well, you know, other than reading comic books and, or books or stuff like that, you know, I really like watching TV. And she was like, well, you need to think about what you're going to do when you grow up. Yeah. And I said, I want to do this. And I pointed at the TV. And she said, What are you saying? I said, I want to, whatever these people are doing, right? This stuff that they're doing on the TV, I want to, that's what I want to do. And she looked at me and she said, Good luck, because I don't know how to right. make it happen. And uh, we had a bookmobile, which is a mobile library that used to land on our block every Saturday. And maybe between nine and 10, I went to the librarian and said I need to read books on making movies and television. Wow. And she said, "Okay, well let me look for them." And so she started bringing me books. You know?
2: Let me let me ask you this now. Well, first one comment which is that's super dope because a lot of folks don't at that age don't make the connection that that, that people are actually doing it. They right. just like it just is like some shit on a screen, right? You know, like the bookmobile, was that because
0: the libraries were under-resourced? No, they, or, they were actually strong, but they they just wanted to make sure that education could get out. I love it, you know? And so, you know, she started bringing me books. Some would be biographies, you know, some would be super technical, and I would just read them all, you know? And, and when I was 11... My old man bought me a Super 8 camera and a projector, hmm. and I used to sneak it into school and like film while I was in class, and 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 you know get kicked out and shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and my mother was like, "We ain't gonna have too many times where you get kicked out of class." And I was like, "All right, well, you know, I would like talk my friends into like doing like stupid stuff for the camera, right?" And so. From there, I think I was around 11, I read about this kid in Cleveland, Ohio, who was inspired by Enter the Dragon to make his own Kung Fu movie. He was a teenager. Right. That was the other thing I was into at the time, Kung Fu. I was this huge, huge, crazy Bruce Lee fan. And not only did he make it in Super 8, but they had a screening at Hmm. the local theater. So I was like, yo, I'm next. And actually like wrote the kid and he sent me his movie and, you know, I watched it and sent it back. I think I may have torn a couple of reels. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And and it just, that just became my focus. Like, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade. It was like, I was teaching myself how to write screenplays. I was teaching myself how to write plays. We had a, our drama class had a lunchtime drama theater. Mm -hmm. So I would write plays for those. And I wrote my first quote unquote spec TV script when I was 15 because I was a huge fan of Hill Street Blues. Right. And there was one character on there who thought he was a superhero that I love, played by, uh, Dennis Dugan, and I wrote what I, you know, what I, what I thought a Hill Street episode would be, right. And then I, that's when I kind of realized I was like, I don't know the the craft of writing. And we had a mall at Southlake Mall we used to go to, and I got I told my mother I said I need to go get some books on screenwriting, and so she, put, you know, she was like, I got to go to the mall anyway, right. And I found this book called five screenplays by Preston Sturgis. Mm. And Preston Sturgis, the filmmaker from the 40s, he was actually the first writer-director because he had been writing scripts and was like, he was kind of the Aaron Sorkin of his time. Right. And then at a certain point, he was like, I want to direct. And they wouldn't let him direct. And he was, in 1939, this dude was making like $300,000 a script. And so he went to Paramount, and he said, I want to direct a movie. And they said, well, we don't want to lose you as a, as a writer. He goes, don't worry about it. I'm going to write it. Right. He said, but I'll charge you $1 for the script if you let me direct. Hmm. And they went, hell, they, okay. No, we'd save $299,000. Hey, hey. And so hey. they, gave him, they gave it to him, and there was this movie called Great McGinty. And the thing that was interesting, because I had had screenplay books before, but what they normally do or did back in the day was they would, they wouldn't keep them in the form. Yeah. They turned it into like, like
2: a word document. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: You know, name on the side, colon, dialogue. And this book, if I was home, I'd show it to you. This book was the actual scripts. So I came home, sat the book down next to my Smith Corona, and I just started retyping the pages, trying to find the margins because they didn't tell you, you know, where the tabs were and stuff like that. Right. That was kind of how I learned formatting. Right. And so then I wrote that, and I was like, shit, I'm on the roll. And I wrote my first feature when I was 16. Mm -hmm. And it was about a dude who was the captain of the football team and his girlfriend was the head cheerleader and she ends up dead and he ends up running from the cops. And, his, and one of the cops is his brother-in-law to try to prove his innocence. And his friend tells him that he's going to help him try to find the killer. And by the end, you realize he's setting him up because his friend killed the girl. Right, right. And so I, I like... Right, right. And so I, I like you were, uh, 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 this might be in bad
2: taste. That, that was a forerunner to OJ Simpson.
0: You're
3: right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I let my teacher, my drama teacher read it. And she said, you know, if you, if you learn how to type, <laughs> you might be pretty good at this. And so I was like, okay. and. I kept writing plays and all this other kind of stuff. And eventually I was like, oh, I'm going to go to film school. But my high school grades were so horrendous, I couldn't get into school, right? So, but Columbia College in Chicago was more like a trade film school. Okay. So I went there for the first semester and... Then the 80s recession hit and I had to drop out of school. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to fucking do this. But all of the biographies that I had read, like they weren't just about actors and directors. They were about producers and studio heads and, you know, the wide net that is Hollywood. And, you know, Hollywood was built before film schools were even thought of. And I went, I got, a masterclass in front of me, wherever there's a bookstore or a library. Right. And so I just started from like ground zero. And I never, the funny thing is I never wanted to move to LA. I never wanted to move to the West coast. I wanted to be around that time. Indie filmmaking was taking everything by storm. Right. You know, Henry portrait of a serial killer. You know, she's got to have it and all that other kind of stuff. And I was like, if I could just make movies for like $200,000 for the rest mm-hmm. of my life, I'm good, you right. know? And so Dallas, Texas was becoming a place where they were making indies. And my brother, my oldest brother moved to Dallas. So I said, I'm, can I move with you? And he said, yeah, you know, but I'm going to drive trucks. What are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to find a job and I'm going to break into the film industry in Dallas. And he went, that's dumb. And I said, I have to do it my own way. You know what I mean? So I went to Dallas. I was living with him for a while. He kicked me out. Ended up working at (laughs) 7-Eleven for three years. And that's a goddamn movie in and of itself. You know, when you come into work one day and your boss tells you, Oh no, the She come pulls you in the back, and she goes, "Did you hug a white woman the other day?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's a friend of mine." And she, yeah. she was like, "Another woman was in the store, and they're threatening to boycott the store if they ever see you do that again." So that was the environment that I was in, right? Wow! And I, you know, of course, I like hugged all the white women that I could after that right. because I was waiting for them to boycott the store, right? And uh, You're like, that would be a good third act. <laughs> you, you know, like you getting on, you know, yeah. but while I was there, I was writing, and writing, and writing, and, you know, just like trying to build my skill set. And, the, you know, of course it didn't take off the way I thought it was, but I ended up being friends with a guy who ran a bunch of mom and pop video stores. Right. and he came in the 7-Eleven one day and he said, yo, would you want to move to California? And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. You know, better than here. Right. And. Uh, Where in Texas? Where are you? I was in Dallas. Dallas. Okay. Well I, well, I was outside of Dallas. I was in a place called Carrollton. Okay. Yeah. And heard of it. All of the mom and pop shops had been bought up by a growing mm. video company in Dallas called Blockbuster. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went with him to Sacramento. And then I was like, I'm going to kill somebody here. And (laughs) my cousin said, who lived in San Francisco, was like, you can move down here and hang out with us. Right. So I moved to San Francisco. And at the time, for whatever reason, it was the hub of Black R&B and hip-hop videos. We're flying from New York to work with directors and, and, and producers in, in the Bay. Who were some of those directors? The one dude that I remember the most, it was a dude named Michael Lucero, who mm-hmm. died in a motorcycle accident. But Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis had this band called Low Key. Mm-hmm. And they, they had a song called The Shawanda Story. <laughs> And that was shot there, and a friend of mine at the time was was a camera assistant on it, and then you know, of course you had e forty and that that was the time when 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 the master P was in the bay, right you know j t the bigger figure, I think Paris was in the bay, and he was like kind of a jump ahead of what public enemy became, you know. And so I got to work on a couple of those sets as a PA and got to work on some shorts and stuff. And I wrote a Lethal Weapon ripoff, and sent it to a friend of mine in, who was living in L.A. And somehow it went from him to a family friend of theirs. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm, this woman's asking me if I want to fly down to L.A. to meet at MGM and Warner Brothers and, you know, John Davis's company because they had all read the script. And I was like, holy hell, <laughs> this is, a, is this about to happen? And I went down there and and it didn't, but like,
3: you know, it was eye-opening because, you know, Michael Jordan says,
0: when I'm within those 94 feet mm. on the court, that's the only time that basketball is basketball. You know, and outside of it, it's all business. Right. You know, that was right. like the first time I got smacked in the mouth about the business side of what we do. Right. I want to
2: pause for a second because this is this is great. This is why I know, you know, And it's an affirmation of you being a good writer because I don't even have to ask nothing. (laughs) You're just taking it right through all my questions, which is amazing because it's all very linear but also informative. I have a question about, like, was your family supportive of what was probably a very unique dream, you know, your parents? And also, you know, what was it about you that gave you the kind of fortitude to, to be so deliberate and,
0: and, and, and persistent about going after this thing? The first question, I, you know, to me, there are different ways to be supported. Yeah. And the best way for me was that they, they said, we don't understand this much. Like I, my, I literally Kurt my <laughs> girlfriend. I don't know what he's saying half the goddamn time. Right. But that's him, you know? And so my mother and my father were both from Mississippi, you know, both had high school educations, you know, given whatever Mississippi education was, but they, Mm -hmm. but coming out of, my mother was born in 1928, my father was born in 1926. Coming out of what that environment was, When by the time they got to me, they felt like just let him fly, Mm -hmm. you know, and and kind of they would say, you know, be on the lookout for this or, you know, make sure nobody takes advantage of you about that. But it's like we don't understand what it is you want to do, but we know you want to do it. So. Go. Yeah. You know. And and the second question is funny because. I was literally thinking about this the other day. At a certain point, I had to say to myself, "What I'm doing might be might seem special to some people, but it's work." Hmm. And and if you think it's as special as what other people might think it as, you might lose focus on the work. You know. And, and I was, I always like kind of go back over my life from nine till now, Where, wherever now is. I'll go, wait, which turn did I make? Which, what yes did I say? What no did I say that put me forward or put me back or whatever? Right. And the other day I was literally thinking like, because, you you know, I get people who will say to me, like, yo, you just, you seem super determined and, like, you don't let shit stop you. And I, and I usually tell people I'm friends with fear, mm. you know, because it's going to go on the ride with you. So you might as well talk to it and say, I got you, you know, because fear, the fear in you, you know, if you're a parent, and you know, you're, you're discovering this now, when you're a parent, you got to kind of like be the one that like tells the kid, sometimes you pull them gently. Sometimes you push them gently. Sometimes you go, this is what it is. Right. And I, and I started looking at my fears as if it were, were a kid. Hmm. And so I was like, you know what? It's all right to be afraid to do something if you have a good conversation with yourself Basically, telling your fears, I will protect you, right? And so I was like, when the hell did I get that?" And here's the craziest goddamn answer came to my head. <laughs> it was because I was a comic book
3: junkie. Mm. That's that's
0: what every character
2: hero is dealing with in a comic book. It's yeah, the fundamental, fundamental spine.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah. and and you know, like. Me and my nerdy friends, when we used to trade back and forth and have these super stupid teenage existential conversations about comic books, it always came back to a person's character. Right. You know, why is is Bruce Wayne so rich, but he's on the streets fighting, da-da-da-da-da, you know, his parents got murdered and... He just thought, I have to take care of Gotham, so this is my responsibility. Right. Why is the most powerful human being on the planet so concerned with being seen as a regular person that he puts on glasses and goes and gets a job? Right. It's because he's an orphan, you know? So you have these conversations about these characters, and I kind of realized that embracing some of those moralities through what was, you know, a medium that everybody used to make fun of at the time. Right. Literally was giving me some sort of guy. Mm. And, you know, now I got a got a Batman tattoo, you
3: know, I got an
0: <laughs> eye tattoo. Right. And, you know, even like watching Popeye cartoons, it was like, okay, so here's this ugly dude who's in love with this ugly chick. <laughs> but to him, olive oil is the world. Right. One thing I'm not going to do is let Brutus, Bluto, you know, kind of like mess with this situation. Right. It, when we think about storytelling, you know, it's, it, it, and, you know, maybe this is why I love stories so much. But when we think about storytelling, it's like you can, you will never get away from telling a human story. Right. I don't care what the genre, I don't care what the medium is, I don't care if it's Dr. Seuss. Right. You know, somewhere in the back of your mind, you are doing something that Dr. Seuss laid out. Right. Right. You know. And so I think, you know, watching my parents who were very, very vocal about what happened to them in the 50s and the 40s and the 60s and the 70s. And and still seeing them try to be good people with many, many flaws, right. you kind of go, okay, this is the good that I can take from this. And when you read, you know, like some people will say they get their morality from the Bible. Some people will say they get their morality from novels that they read. Some people will get their morality from comic books. But I think when you strip it all down, you're telling a, a story about the human condition because we're all humans and we can't do anything but tell that story. Right. That has sort of embedded itself in me that I was on a journey much like these cats. Mm. You know? You get struck in the middle of the street and radiation hits your eyes and you're blind. Right. Now what do you do? <laughs> you <know? laughs> did you Did you view yourself as the
2: hero in your own story? Like, did you... Kind of developed this kind of 10,000 foot view on the actions you were making? Or yeah. was it, you know, more of a way to like internalize as you move through things coming at you at eye
0: level? You know what I'm saying? I, you know what? I, I, maybe I think I did, but never verbalized. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. My, I, I believe my superpower. Is that I think I'm a regular dude, hmm. and and what I mean by that is I'm never going to not think I have to work for something, right? I never think things are just going to be easy. Be just because, right? right. So in that, I'm willing to grind it out every day, right? You know? And, and my, like, my old man was the first black man to pour steel in Indiana. Right. You know, which kind of means if there wasn't anybody black pouring steel in Pittsburgh, he was the first black man to pour steel. Right. And he was a functioning alcoholic. You know, and, you know, we had... Some rock 'em sock 'em nights in the, in in our house, right? But when he reached his thirty fourth year in the in the mill, and they gave him this little raggedy wind up clock, hmm. they also said in thirty four years
3: he cumulatively only missed two weeks of work, right? And this
0: is having to get caught in blizzards. Right. Where he would walk home like miles, Right. Or stay the night and work a shift after he'd already worked two shifts. And he just kind of kept trudging on, you know? Right. And so when I started applying that to this it made everything doable yeah and you know? and so much i mean it's like
2: the, the sweat equity is in your ability to understand story and navigate you know structure and have good ideas and then on top of that what navigate the politics of people but i i've yet to see the the day on set where it's like man i'm if i got to lift another thing you know yeah. <laughs> it, that right. ain't that ain't part of it, you know. Maybe you got to weather the cold, and that that can be challenging, or weather the heat, and that can be challenging. But still, it's in the service of like your mind,
0: yeah. Which is a you different know, thing, and and you know, it doesn't, I, I, you know. At least I feel it doesn't minimize what's going on creatively. <laughs> but I think that you know, there's a handshake of agreement between creativity and grinding,
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. sometimes when people get overly frustrated about it, I just say, there's one of them you're not doing. Yeah, it's probably the grinding, you know? And, and so if, 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 you know, going back to what you said, 10,000 feet, I don't know if I ever saw 10,000 feet. I may have gotten to 2,000 a couple of times, steps,
3: you
0: know, because I've I quit every year that I've been, you know, before I got in the business, since I've been in the business, I'm like, I quit, done yeah. with this, you know, or I feel like I misunderstood. So I go through all of the gamut of emotions, but in the quiet time, you know, I come back to something that my ex-wife said to me before I even started in the business when we were Dating, she said, you got to stop saying no before the people who can, who will say no to you do. You have to stop saying no to yourself before they get a chance to say no to you. Right. And so that means keep it moving. Yeah. You know,
4: that's the thing, man. I, I,
0: I feel like that I had, I had a
2: similar pivot and I try and go in. You know, I find myself going in for jobs now where, like, I'm not necessarily the ideal person that they picture when they put it on paper, like, they're going to have done these things. Right. I'm like, well, you know, y'all got to have something on that paper. But now I'm coming in and I'm going to do me and I'm going to make, I'm going to challenge your idea of what's on that paper. Right. You know, and make you recognize that maybe you should be looking at that paper a little bit differently. But, like, that's a, Knowing knowing your worth and stepping into these rooms with that kind of, you know, superhero engine in your back is key because yeah. you take yourself right
0: out the game. But, you know, the other thing, too, and this has just always been me, it, you know, when you talk about what's on that piece of paper, at a certain point, I was just like, I don't give a fuck what's on that piece of paper. Right. You know, because... You think, you know, we'll use the business. You think because you have the biggest and best tool <laughs> that I want to play with you. You know, there's this, I forget, I forget who this was. There was a, a brother who played street ball, and he was goddamn excellent at it. And he got into the NBA. And at a certain point, he was like, "Man, fuck this!" and went back to playing street ball. Was it Pee Wee Kirkland? I think it was Pee Wee Kirkland, yeah. uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. And I remember when I first heard that story, and you know, had conversations with people about that story. They were like, "You know, how fucking dumb is that?" And I said, "That's not dumb at all. He knew himself, right? You know, and 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 we all think that doing what we do." Whatever it is we do, we have to aim toward the standard that's set. And I don't necessarily agree with that. Right. You know? And I've had some pretty goddamn good jobs in this business. Yeah. And if somebody came to me and said, I got $150,000 to make like a movie and you got to shoot it in 12 days. Trust me. You're said, gonna, yes. are going to be shooting the movie for $150,000. Right. You know, with... Novice actors and and three or four person crew because it my my right as a person as long as I am not bringing harm to somebody else is to do what I want, right? You know, and so you know when I was in my teens and my twenties, yeah, I was all about it. You know, I was collecting Fantastic magazine, Fangoria. Right. You know, i reading read an American film magazine before they shut that down, anything. Because I was like, I'm going to be, and I'm getting in there, and I'm going to, and I'm going to, and I'm going to. And then when it wasn't happening, and that despair fell upon me, Spike came out with She's Got
3: to Have It. Hmm. And I was like, wait, what? Right. <laughs> you know? And then... Townsend doubled
0: it down with Hollywood Shuffle. Right. Right. And then just another girl from the, on the IRT and sidewalks. Leslie Harris. Yeah. You know, and, and so it was like that, you know, it's that Booker T. Washington theory that has some sense to it. Cast down your buckets where you are. Right. And so when I started thinking about this in that way, you know, What's wrong with making a feature in Super 8? What's wrong with making a feature on your iPhone? What's wrong with whatever the tools are that are in front of you? So once I got to that mindset, someone could say, hey, you don't, you know, I look at this piece of paper and you don't fit it. Right. Like, that ain't the only fucking piece of paper. (laughs) Right.
2: Well, this is a, so I kind of cut you off to, to, detour a little bit, but you were talking about the business and, and that John Davis meeting and that stuff. I kind, oh, of, yeah. I, I kind of want to see if this question threads the needle to continue that, that answer. You know, because right now we're talking about 86 with Spike. 86 to probably 90, 91, 92 is like the kind of height of the independent cinema where Black folks were coming out with films as writer-directors and bringing people into our world or, or maybe reverse that. Taking our world out to audiences and your, you know, I see in and from IMDb for what it's worth. You know, we got the NYPD Blue. You played detective in 2000, City of Angels. You wrote an episode in 2000. What's going on in between this 86 to 2000 period? You know, as you as you kind of are figuring things out and getting into the place where you have quote unquote, industry credits, because right. I, I, I feel like I'm going to hear something that I'm familiar with, because I know like when I like when I move through these TV spaces, people think they act like I ain't make two features, you know oh, yeah. what I mean? Like they, like, yeah. they act yeah. like I was I was plucked, you know, out of the oven in a in a director program and then I was born, you right. know, and I was 40 years old. So right. what what do you say to that?
0: Well, you, what I was going to say about, you know, those those first meetings was, you know, you go in as a fan and you come out like, I need to figure this shit out, right? Because you think that those people are bringing you, you in for meetings because they read whatever you did or they saw whatever you did and they just love you. And, you know, and you're going to have these like long, wonderful conversations about the business and and, like, kind of, like, live in your ignorance, and they're just going to, like, go, here's what you should do. But, right. you know, what doing is they're looking for a product. You right. just have to give the product, you know. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know that when you go in for a meeting and they say, what do you have next, <laughs> you don't say, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I got some things. I'm trying to figure some things out, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And so it accelerated for me, like, super fast. In getting those meetings and nothing came out of them. And it was like, oh, okay, there's only so much, there's only so much space for only being a fan. Mm -hmm. You got to figure this out, you know? And so that happened around 87 to the early 90s. I wrote another script that was My Fair Lady setting the projects. Okay. And it got to Arsenio Hall's company, and it got to Paramount, and they were like, hey, you know, we really dig this script, but we don't have anybody who could go in front of the camera that can get this made. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I'm watching John Travolta go from Benny, Benny Barbarino to Tony Manero. You know, I'm watching... You know, all of these other cats in television transition to film, but you're saying that there's nobody to do that for. And I wrote that script. I just told him this when I met him a couple of months ago. I wrote that script particularly for Cady Martin, right? You know, and I'm like, but how come at the, he- at the height of of his of his fame, right? Right. So again, you you're kind of learning. Mm-hmm. The way the business thinks. And so I was like, okay, well, when I was in, you know, like I said, I had gotten to San Francisco and I was 29 years old and, you know, I was working at a bookstore and I didn't have a car and I was living by, you know, and all of the rules that had been set were in my head. Mm. Need- Insurance. You, you know, you should be married by now. You, you know, you, where are your kids? You know, right. all, all of this kind of shit. And so I was like, fuck it. I'm going to pack up. I'm going to move back home. It was the only other thing I've ever wanted to do outside of, you know, be a crooner a la Sinatra. Yeah. <laughs> Unexpected. <laughs> Y'all, man, let me tell you, I, when, when I was a kid, that was all I wanted to do. If I was like, if I don't make it in the movies, I'm going to be a singer. But, you know, voice change and all that shit. But the only other thing I've ever wanted to do was teach. Mm. So I was going to go back to school and I was, you know, my plan was to get a job teaching in Gare. Okay. And a friend of mine went, you should not go back home. And mm. I was like, it ain't like I got a bunch of money in my pocket, homie. You know, and, and, and these scripts aren't popping you know uh, i am not on page 1 through 12 of variety hollywood reporter or something like that and he told me to go to la and literally loaned me the money to buy a car wow and i came out there's always an angel man there's always. always an angel but here's the thing and i'm glad you said that there is always one mhm but you have to take your blinders off to see him yeah yeah, that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand—that you have to open your peripheral to see them because they're not all going to come the way you understand them to come. Right? Because because the ideal angel
2: for you is, at that moment is John Davis says angel. Right? It, it, it's it's something else. It's not casting your buckets down where you are and having yeah. that
0: that thing disappear right where you are. Right. So you know, I end up being an assistant at disney and working in development and not knowing until many many years later how important that two years of working as a development person would be to me as a writer
4: right
0: you know and so i did that i ended up working at deaf pictures for Stan Lathan, Russell Simmons, and Preston Holmes and mm-hmm. Tracy Kimball. My mom, my mother passed. I went back home for a year and then our mutual friend Tamara Gregory reached out because she was working, getting ready to start at Magic Johnson's and mm-hmm. I went and became her assistant and and did that for two years. And had decided at that time that I was going to give up writing and go into being an exec because I felt like there weren't enough Black execs who understood story to pipeline us, to ground railroad us in a way where we weren't all telling the same story. And found Brown Sugar when I was there. Was that Michael Elliott? Michael Elliott, Okay. And, and he had sent a fax, a blind fax, with two scripts. And one was basketball-related. Like yeah. Mike? No, 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 no. Uh, the Billy D. Williams, Jimmy uh, Kahn movie. Brian saw. Oh, okay, okay. He had done a basketball version of that, and he sent another script that was, based, that was inspired by a Mary J. Blige song called Seven Day. I read it. And I remember thinking, oh, if I was still writing, this is kind of what I would have written. Hmm. Met him at a coffee shop, and I said, hey, man, I'm going to try to help you get this made. And took it to Tamra, and Tamara loved it, and then we took it to Magic, and then Fox bought it, and then put it in Turnaround, and then later Fox Searchlight made it. Okay. But in helping him, get get going, I felt like, this is a good path. You know, if I have to give up writing for anything, if I'm helping other people get on. Right. You know. But then that show, that job went down and I got offered an assistance job on Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I was working for Marty Noxon at the time. And I took the blinders off, the feature blinders. Right. And I went, there's a lot of story that's getting told about people like us that's not getting told in feature film, in television. Yeah. Television. Yeah. And this could be the new avenue for me to get back into being creative mm-hmm. and started writing again and ended up somehow, some way. Oh through Titus Welliver, who plays Bosch. Yeah, yeah. He and I were neighbors, and he was getting married, and he had his bachelor's party, and I went to his bachelor party, and sitting two chairs away from me was David Milch. And I'm, I'm like, looking at him, and somebody said, you okay? And I went, yeah, I'm fine. And in my head, I'm thinking back to when I was 16, Hmm. writing that Hill Street Blues spec. Right. Telling my high school classmates that one day I would grow up and write for Stephen Bochco and David Milch. Right. And, you know, and so I didn't talk to him. And then a year later, I bumped into him and he remembered. That probably took took everything not to say shit,
2: didn't
3: it?
0: No, no, no. No. I, I have this crazy, crazy rule. I never feel like I need to impinge upon someone else's time,
3: mm.
0: right? Like I am never driven to speak my piece because that person's standing in front of me. Because I feel like if it's meant for me to ever talk to this person, I'll talk to him again,
2: and it'll it'll be in the right organic way. It won't be a you won't have to push it. Yeah,
0: you know, and and and, and that came off of of. Uh, I was reading a self-help book somewhere along the line, well, along the way. And it had this thing, it had this passage about how the right way to come to someone with your hand. Mm. And it said, if you are trying to show, show yourself worthy, you never come with your hand out. You come with something in it that you can give to the person. Right, right. Right? And whether it be your skill set or whatever, right? So that kind of like always made me say, whenever I was around someone, is my skill set good enough that it can continue a conversation? Because we can all start one. Right, right. But can you continue? Man, this is like, this is a thing that comes
2: up so often, man. Like, you know... And you probably get the same, you know, if not more. Like people reach out for, you know, your insight, your advice. They want to do an informational interview. You are candid, you know, and you try and give something thoughtful that is a real critique, but also actionable, and, and they can move towards something. And I can't tell you, man, there's a there's a healthy percentage of folks that are not are are doing exactly not that. Where right. it's like you know, oh well, like I'll say like look you're telling me you want to do these particular shows. It could happen. right? It could happen. But like, maybe you want to start with like law and order. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and, and there's nothing on that. It's just, there's more episodes, there's more shows, there's more opportunities. You're not necessarily going to be landing your first episode of television on Westworld. Right. And you have to be able to look at yourself and say, yeah, I'm not that dude right now. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and it, and it's a big stretch for somebody to cross that moat and say yeah we're going to give you the keys
0: to it so but not only i'm not that person right now why am i not aware of the amount of work that i need to put in to be that person mm. you know what i mean cuz you can right. say i'm that you know i'm not the dude right now and 3 years later still not be that dude, dude. Yeah. You're not you're not building your skill set.
4: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So because you can look at it externally and go, "Oh, you know, homeboy was dealing with this, or homegirl was dealing with that," and so they weren't able to see me as the person that I am. Mm -hmm. But are you seeing yourself as the person you know that you need to be? And so the way I approach everything, and you know, and I and when I sit down with people. I tell them,
3: you may get up and be mad at, with me, gravy. Right. But do I leave you with something? If
0: I leave you with something, you may not get it until you're not mad anymore, Right.
3: You know? And that's what it is. Because even when I parallel myself
0: to... My group of people, I'm 57, I think it was maybe 10, 12 years ago before somebody, a black male in drama in their 50s was still having a career. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Right. So Because there was that ceiling. Right. You got to a certain point where they were like, you know, he's he's kind of grumpy and he's kind of it. You know, and he doesn't play well with other, you know, all of the fucking wrote codes. Right, right. And and so being able to see it in front of me, it it made me go back to I always go back to the kid who went in that bookmobile.
3: What can I learn? Right. Because that's your currency.
0: Your skill set is always your currency. currency. So if 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 I ended up in a situation where I was like, oh, I'm not that dude right now, I'm immediately starting to do an internal checklist. Right. On, okay, well, when that conversation went this way and they started talking about how to write for a budget,
3: you didn't really know. It. Right. So am I blaming this person or am I blaming me? And if
0: right. I'm blaming me, as long as I'm not wallowing in it, we can turn this around. Right. The answers are out there. Yeah. You know, and the crazy thing. So I meet Milch a year later. He's walking out of a gym. I'm coming in the gym and I go, Hey David. How you doing? And he goes, hey. And I said, Titus introduced us. And he goes, yeah, I remember you. And Mm -hmm. he asked what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to write for TV and film. And he goes, what are you doing now? I said, I'm working as an assistant on this show, Buffy the Vampire. And he goes, do you have anything I can read? And I went, yep. (laughs) Right. Now,
3: go back a year and a half.
4: You did not have anything he could read.
3: Right. So you
0: you not only have to learn your craft, but you have to learn how to read your timetables. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You know what I'm saying? You can't just do the ones and the twos and get up. (laughs) And two times 10 is 20. I need. How do you get to 81? Right. Right. And And so learn some fractions in there, too. Oh, some fractions in there. All of that shit. And, and you, and you, you have to think about when, you know, going back to Jordan, you have to think about the things that have to occur outside of the 94 feet to make you the legend inside of. Right.
3: And so I had a, I had a, an angel spec, the Buffy spinoff. And
0: I had a short story that I had written. And he read both of them, and his assistant called me and said, David wants to have lunch with you. How long before you got that call back? Maybe a month or two.
3: Maybe, you know.
0: And we sat down, and he said, what made you write the short story? I didn't think he was going to read the short story. Right. Oh, I also had an X File spec. Okay. Yeah. And I said, well, I was kind of inspired by August Wilson and how his plays are taking place over different decades. Right. So I was going to write this series of short stories that took place between 1880 and 1980. Mm-hmm. And the first one, I fudged a little bit because the first one was about a slave girl who gets killed in the
3: field. And he, he was very taken with the short story. Mm-hmm. And
0: that's what we ended up talking about at lunch. And then he said, I'm going to bring you in, and you know, you're going to apprentice with me for my last year of NYPD Blue.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And then he went, the x file script, it was fine. You know the angel it was fine. I yeah, you can right. write, but the short story tells me that you want to know character, mm-hmm. and then he went on to tell me that he his mentor was Robert Penn Warren, mm-hmm. the guy who wrote all the King's Men, this mm-hmm. novel back in the '40s, who was a master short story writer, right? Yeah. So. That day that I was sitting in San Francisco working at this bookstore, reading all of these books and deciding, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll switch up on my phone mm-hmm. just so I can broaden my skill set led to me getting a job with somebody I'd wanted to work with since I was 16. Right. Right. But you can't see that outcome. The only thing you can see is how can I make myself better? Right. 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 And at that moment, I didn't come with my hand out. I came with something in it. Right.
2: That's amazing, man. I really do hope folks are taking, taking stock and taking note of all that's underneath this journey. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hey, this is Brian Kiboczek, Visual Effects Supervisor. You're listening to Let's Shoot with
3: Peach.
1: Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weasley Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials. And ultimately, I am a return to the future films that gave him a start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration. This book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook from Michael Weezy Productions, is available on Amazon and anywhere else you get your books. Don't forget about your local mom and pop shops, people.
2: Let's talk about getting into the industry and kind of Because I don't know how much everybody understands. At least with writers, there's like a there's a predetermined hierarchy, Mm -hmm. right?
0: So let's kind of different now, though. It's it's different now. It's different now because you can come in with very little experience and you can write a spec pilot, and the next thing you know, you're co-creator, your creator creator slash co-showrunner, right? Right. When I was coming up, you had to go through the hierarchy, right?
2: Seven steps. So. Do those? Did you navigate those seven? Yeah. So let let's talk about that. I guess and how you get to
0: what would be the height? Would Luke Cage as an EP be the be the top of that? Under would be the top. Got it. Which came before, mm-hmm. and because because I I broke the rule because I I understood it enough to break it. Got it. Oh when you're a writer you go staff writer story editor executive story editor co-producer producer supervising
3: producer co-executive producer ep so a and when when we
0: were coming up like me Janine Sherman Berwa Virgil Williams Ben Watkins you know, Malcolm Spellman, Michelle Tramble, all of those people. We had to go through the steps. Right. And, and the, the thing that, again, the universe smiling on me was getting the milch. Milch led to a conversation with me and Bajko. Bajko decided to hire me for City of Angels. I wrote that as a freelance episode. But... Most freelancers come in to hear about their episode and then they go on their way. He wanted me to come into the writer's room from day one. Okay. And so I got to sit in the writer's room, which is something that I had never done. Even though when I was on Buffy, I was right outside of the writers. And in that you learn you start learning the politics. You know, when's the right time to say something? When is this joke appropriate? Right. You know can you really crack on an idea from an upper level if it's, if it doesn't work, you know, where are the safe spaces? What can you take outside of the writer's room? All of that kind of shit. Right. And I got 70% of it wrong. (laughs) You know, but, dude, couldn't get into film school and stay? Now I'm in, you know, and I'm in, one of the greatest film schools ever because this is the man who gave you Hill Street, NYPD Blue, L.A. Law, yeah. Doogie Hauser, yeah. You know, you don't get better than him at the time. And what I learned
3: was this is no different than my old man's job. Mm-hmm. And you can be whoever the fuck you want if you can't do the work. Right. Tick rocks. Right.
0: And the work is multi-level. You know, something I always tell people, well, I started telling people maybe in the last five years that are trying to get into this business, you know, I'll I'll, I'll be talking to them and I'll say, how many languages do
3: you speak? You know, some will say English, that's it. And some will say English, Spanish, French. And I go...
0: You're frustrated by this business because you don't. You think it's one language. Mm-hmm. This is a multi-language business. Mm-hmm. There was a day when if I had said I-N-T period, you wouldn't know what the fuck I was talking about. But now you know I mean interior. Right. Yeah. You know? And it's not just learning format. You're learning a language. And they go, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. And I said, okay, well, tell me what a C-57 is. And they go, I have no idea. And I go, it's a fucking bin. <laughs> but the grips and the gaffers call them C57s because they're right. creating their own language. Right. You know, when you start talking about lights and you talk about a tweenie and a junior and all this other kind of stuff. Right. it. So the more you eat this up and ingest it and the more you learn the language, the more people will start to trust you. Right. Right. So,
2: and the more you'll have an ability to, to realize what's in your mind, yeah, right? Because people also have their tastes or their, their limitations or their politics, and they'll tell you something can't be done or it won't look good. And when you've got that fluency, you know, in these different languages, you can be like, it will work. Yeah, okay. yeah.
0: You know, like you as a director. You, prob- do you, pick- you probably have some still cameras. You probably go out and go, let me just shoot so I can figure my, my shit out. Yeah. Next thing, you know you're on set with a DP and the DP's telling you that they want to use a 45 and you go, I hear you, but a 75 would be nicer because... They may walk yeah. off-, off at you going, why are you telling me my job? Right. And then they'll go, yeah, you put a 75 on so we can prove him wrong. And then there's that one moment Right. And he goes, oh shit, that was right. Right. You have to learn these languages, you know? And, and, and again, you know, what's that saying? You make the money, the money doesn't make you. Right. Well, you make yourself a viable commodity. The business doesn't make you. The business will unmake you. The shelf, (laughs) you know? But like you said, sometimes people don't, sometimes people say they don't, think about you having made two films before you get to them because they're saying, okay, well, sure, he's made two films and he's made what they, what they probably cost like what? $3 million each and you actually, <laughs> not actually, both of them probably cost a million, but <laughs> made the motherfuckers. Right, right. Right? And, and but, but then it falls on you to move with the confidence of someone who made two films. Right, as opposed to the person who falls back and says, "Okay, well, maybe they only did cost, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying so you you get the ammunition, but then it's how you fire it, you get the right. the language, but then it's how you use it, and you have to use it with confidence Yeah. so what I learned on City of Angels was people will hear that you're doing something and they will celebrate it. Because they have made it something in their own minds that it isn't. Right. You know, so when I, you know, all of these agents heard that I was apprenticing with Milch on Blue, I'm getting phone call, phone call, phone call, phone call. Right, right. I need somebody to rep you, you know, and I'm going home to my then wife going, yo, I got agents calling me in. Yo, you know, if I get to write an NYPD blue, this shit's gonna pop and baby, you know what I'm saying? We're gonna pay for this, we go all that other kind of shit. And then Botchko walked in the room and said, you know what? You'd be great for a City of Angels. Right. Now, there's a whole dialogue in between where I was on Blue, mm-hmm. ended up writing for a show that starred Blair Underwood. And this ain't no slight to Blair and and right. All of the people, shit. I think Viola Davis was in my episode, right? Right. You know, and 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 Bokeem and and Gab Union and you know and Tamara Taylor. So it was it was heavy hitting, but the politics. Yes, I had just print apprenticed on a show for a year, a show that I knew inside and out, right. And then you look at me across the room hmm You say, you should write for that shit. Right. That's politics. Right. Without anybody ever having to say a word. Right.
2: And, you know, and, and 2000 was a much different time than 2023.
0: 2000 was a much different time. Right? So I write the City of Angels episode, and then I tempt for three years. Mm. Grown-ass man, married, kid, you know? <laughs> And, and I made another political choice. I had been an assistant. I had wrote, wrote the episode. I thought, what, I thought the episode was exactly what it was, a chance to get my name on screen. Right. Nothing more. Right. And when I decided I was going to tempt I decided that I was not going to temp in the industry. Mm. And when people asked me why, I said because the industry is on their time and a regular temp job is on business time. Right. So if I go and temp in the industry and I'm there 14 hours, when do I have time to write? Right. When do I have time to see my kid? Right. And... It does not guarantee that someone's ever going to read my writing. Exactly. So I know people know me as a writer. Let me go take this nine to five job, which will give me time to write, give me time to be a family guy. And also not have me looking at everybody who is excelling and think that I'm less than because I'm so focused on them. Right. Right. So boom, I make that political move, and then one day out of the blue, I get a call from Janine Barrois, and she goes, "I'm on the show Third Watch. They're looking for writers. I want to put you up." And I had written on the NYPD Blue spec while I was on, while I was apprenticing on the show, and I wrote a short film. And I sent it to her. She sent it to the guys, and and. Three years after writing City of Angels, I'm sitting in a room, and what was the first thing they asked me about? What made you write this short film? Right. And I was like, wait a minute. I keep doing the thing that everybody tells me to do. Right. And when I kind of dip outside of the waters, that's the thing that ends up being interesting. Right. I got to start looking at this business in a completely different way, not just inside, but inside, outside. Right, right. So I sit with those guys, Ed Brunero and Scott Williams. They had worked for Milch and Bochco on a show called Brooklyn Sow.
3: And they hired to be a staff writer on Third Watch. Go back
0: three years. I'm sitting watching Third Watch with my wife. And I said, if I could write for one show, it would be this
3: one. Yeah. Blue gave me right. the skill set to write for it, right? So I get the job,
0: story, staff writer, story editor, executive story editor. Right. Executive story editor year, I end up in, Fox had a directing program called Fox Search Lab. Okay. And that short film that got me the job, they wanted to make. And I said, Well, how much are you going to give me? They said, You get 25 grand. And I was like, The damn thing is called rain. And it takes place in the rain in the 40s with two people sitting in the car waiting to go kill somebody. It's a hitman waiting on his job. And he's he right. to his girlfriend while he's doing it. Right. And I go home to my wife and I say, Hey, they're giving me 25,000 to make this. And it's going to cost Mm sixty, and she goes, "Do you think it can lead anywhere?" And I said, "If I do it right, it could like lead to me directing something, right? Maybe an episode or something like that." Because I was in John Wells's camp, right? John Wells was one of the first proponents of bringing up diverse directors, yeah. And then she said, "Okay, spend the money." So. I end up getting the Warner Brothers back lot. I got all these rain machines. I got all these vintage cars. The fucking thing ends up costing me $70,000. I'm shooting on black, I'm shooting on 35, got Panavision cameras, all the film stock, all of this shit, blah, blah, yeah. blah. I cut it together, blah. The producer director on Third Watch says, hey, if we come back for season seven, you get an episode to direct. Okay. I'm like, gravy, And then it gets canceled. Of course. Right,
3: (laughs) right, and this is what I did. Okay, what's next? Right, you know, I end up on the show Killer Instinct.
2: Well, but it
0: sounds like too. I just want to.
2: What you're doing is removing expectation from every endeavor, and probably
0: maintaining your sanity because of it. Absolutely, because who has to do that all the time? Grip. Electric. Right. Oh, man. The right. Russian, Russian Ralphs. You know what I'm saying? Right. And and it's like, every day I have to do this. Right. So whatever happens, quote unquote, pops, it's going to pop off of what I consistently do. Exactly. You know? And so I end up on Killer Instinct and, and there was politics on that show. We ended up getting to episode 8 and they canceled us but they wanted us to finish out you know the remainder of the season and the showrunner didn't like me right it's going to happen it's, you know and i was like i'm good you don't like me i understand he and he said you you don't have the voice of the show and i said i mean <laughs>
3: who does
0: <laughs> <You know? laughs> Like, let's be honest. The show sucks. Right.
3: right?
0: And around that time, (laughs) The Shield had, I think The Shield was going into its first year. Uh Uh-huh. Its first year. And there had been, you know, whispers on the wind that The Shield was a spec. But yeah, spec script. And he wrote it while he was on Angel. He was supposed Mm -hmm. to write a sitcom. Sean Ryan was supposed to write a sitcom and he couldn't unlock his brain to write the sitcom. He'd always had this idea called The Barn and he just Mm. went, fuck it, I'll just write this idea. And I'm not sure how true it is, but that's kind of been the story. Right. And at that time, the entire town was like, nobody writes original material in television. Mm. Your way in, is to write a spec of a show that's already on. Right. That shows if you can catch the voice of that show, then people believe that you can write in television. Right. And I went home the day that they told us that we were canceled. And I told my wife, I said that we got canceled and you know I'm gonna have to start looking for another job soon, but you know, not for a minute. And she goes, what are you gonna do? And I said, I'm gonna write a spec. Pilot, and she was like, but you're not supposed to. I said, we ain't playing supposed to no more. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. right. What I was able to say to her in that moment, I'm not going to say no to myself. I'm going to let them say no. To me. Right. Like, and she went, oh, okay. Throw it back in my face. Right, right. right, right, right. And I had this idea for a cop show. And I told myself I would give myself 30 days to write it and get it as polished as possible. Because what I felt was happening with writing all of those specs for other shows is exactly what that showrunner told me. You can't, you don't get the voice of these the show. Right. And I said to myself, yeah, it's probably because I want someone to hear my voice. And instead of continually taking it out on the shows that I'm on, mm. just write something that will let people see my voice, hear my voice. Right. right, So I wrote this script called Under, gave it to my agents. They were like, you know, you're not supposed to write specs. I said, Sean Ryan did. Mm. And here's the great thing about that. I only needed one person to do it for me to say I could do it too. Right. You know, and so... My manager called me and she said, I think we can sell this. We sent it around town and I got tons of meetings, you know, and I, and I said to my wife, I said, if this thing only just gets me out of the place where I never have to write for a show called Killer Instinct again, right. we even won. right?" And I got hired twice in one day on two ABC shows. I ended up taking one day break. A couple of shows called to try to hire me two weeks later. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be in the space where A&E was starting to do dramas again. And they asked me for a free option. And I said, sure. And my agents went, you can't do that. We, you know, we can set this up. And I said, you didn't even believe in the damn script. So mm-hmm. I need you to calm it down. Right, right. But gave a and E a free option. Never thought about it. Ended up going on daybreak. And one day I'm feeding my kids, getting ready to take them to school. It's always been about my kids. Like, once I started having kids, this whole industry was like, how can y'all give me money so I can just be with my kids? Right, right, right. And it's my agent and manager on the phone, and and they're like, A&E wants to shoot your pilot.
3: And I went, okay. (laughs) And they went, that's it? That's all you got? And I said, what else do you want me to do?
0: Right. You want me to miss out? <laughs> you want me to like, you know, do a cartwheel? You want me to- I said, this is what I was working toward.
3: Want- yeah. Yeah. This is this is Tuesday. Right. You know? And we have to
0: figure out where to get it shot. We have to make sure it's good enough so that they, they'll pick it up to series. Then we got to figure out what series is. Right. We got to figure out what the first season is and hopefully get another season. I and said We got so. work to do. We got work to do. <laughs> and hung up the phone. And my wife went, what happened? I said, they're getting ready to, they want to make the pilot. And she went, oh my God. And I was like, see, there you go. Good. Now it's out. Right. Right, 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 right. And then the next thing you know, 2008. Oh boy. I'm, sh- I'm shooting. Yeah. Right? Even though that we were in the strike. I'm in Vancouver shooting. Politics happened there. Shit that I could learn to carry forward. Right. But the reason that I'm saying it changed my career before I got to EP on Cage was by the time I got to Cage, my own pilot had dreamed me how to become a skilled person that everybody would keep coming back to. Right. Right. You know, and they don't pick the show up. And I went, okay, what's next? Right. And I end up on V. That was a shit show. I end up on Castle. (laughs) Good things happened out of that. I met Terrence Winter, who's one of my dearest. I go from Castle to Sons. Of Anarchy. No, I go from Castle to Clone Wars. Okay. I think. And then Clone Wars led me to Sons. Now I'm saying that. cartoon leaving you to leading you to a motorcycle show
2: let let's do a little bit of a skip to being a showrunner right so can we can we talk about what you're what you're on now yeah season two of
0: amazon's
2: outer range and if you could synthesize like what is the job of the showrunner
0: the job of the showrunner yeah is to be the master of ceremonies at a circus,
3: mm.
0: <laughs> and make sure that the acts are moving on time, and the acts that are outside of the big tent are doing what they're supposed to do to make the audience move toward the big tent. So I don't want the flamethrower up. I don't want the flame eater up front. I need the magician up front. And I need the flame eater third because he's going to come right before the snake lady. So the kids will look up and see the horses being taken into the tent. And when their parents are like, let's go home, the kids are going, I want to see the horses. Right. Right. So you're juggling everything that you've learned on those eight steps. Yeah. And you're synthesizing them in a way where you say, I can't tell you how every day is going to happen outside of, you know, the line producer creating the days. Mm-hmm. There's still the emotions. Mm-hmm. And I am the person or a showrunner is the person who babysits the day, the emotions, and tomorrow. Can you speak to, because it's kind of been a bit of a running theme, can you speak to how you landed this position with that pilot?
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Right? Because they were like, you wrote it, and you seem to know what the fuck you're doing. We're going to put you with an EP, and we're going to let you go shoot the pilot. Right. And instead of, you know, me doing the gangster movie hand rub and going, you know what I'm saying? It's my show now. This is what I don't know. This is what I kind of know. This is what I do know. Right. Sit with that EP and say, Well, what happens in this situation? And what happens in that situation? And if, what if we get rained on? And he goes, Well, in Canada, blah, 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 blah. Or that, I think that was the moment, maybe slightly before that I learned if you don't backlight rain, you can't see it. Right. So you, you literally, I always felt like college was this. You started to learn stuff through college, but what you were learning was how to have your perspective on the stuff you were learning.
4: Right. Right. True.
0: Right. And then it all synthesizes when you realize that everything that you've learned helps you push off the fear of being in a new situation.
4: Right.
3: Right. So, so sad. that show. Was like, holy hell. I
0: wrote this because I was just waiting for somebody to hear my voice. It got me work. It got me work with people who were open to tell me how they were running their shit. Mm -hmm. This is the time to put everything that I've heard and seen and learned to the test. Right. And I am big on saying, that I don't know can be three of the power, most powerful words in your vocabulary.
3: Right.
0: Right. Because I've seen people, him and haw and pretend like they know something. Look crazy. And they, and they look crazy and they get dismissed. Yeah. Right. So when we were sitting with the people making the budgets and, you know, when we ended up hiring the directors, I would, you know, I turned to the EP and I was like, well, what what makes you look for a director to hire? It was this, 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 and this. And then I called up some of my old showrunners. Right. What makes this a person that you would want to hire as opposed to this person? Why do you hire this DP as opposed to that DP? Mm-hmm. What, what are you what are you looking for? You know, and it all started off with how much time do you have? Right. Right? So if anything, you are the master of ceremonies who's always got an eye on the clock. Right. For the directors that are listening,
2: like what are what are like three to five things that were kind of consistent as far as this is what we are looking for and, and yourself, this is what I'm
0: looking for when hiring a director for my show? My ability, their own perspective, and their ability to collaborate. And if you don't know them personally, is it enough for you to just
2: get a stamp of approval from someone you trust? Or do you look at their work and
0: and can you glean anything from episodes that they've directed? Okay, so let me me just hold off. Let everybody that's watching this go away for a second. (laughs) Are we we talking true here? Are we talking... Yeah, yeah, this is real, man. This is real. Because you know, and I know, that the majority of it is from the director's perspective, that you have to kind of survive the show. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's like, people going to throw shit at you. People going to like, I don't like what you're doing. You know, mm-hmm. and, or you're going to end up in situations where you're kind of going, that only needs two angles. Then you get... Right. right. And so we sh- when we sh- get to the fourth angle, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, again, you're looking for someone who is creative, and you're also looking for someone who knows the politics of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if that's—if I can be as clear and as candid, yeah. yeah. So I don't just rely on one person,
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know. And I—I I can hear. Four and two can be positive and two can be negative, but I'm not just saying what was it like to work with this person. I'm asking questions. Right. You know, right. how did they start? Are they a slow starter? Do they kind of like day two, day three, mm-hmm. get into her groove? Are they argumentative? You know, and and you got, I feel like you have to know as much of, you got to kind of stop the person. Right. Because... Right if you're show running, you can't be on set every day. Right. You got to be taking care of the next episode that's coming. You got to be in the pre-production. You got to be in concept. You got to, so you got to know that person enough to say, even when you're talking to your line producer, yeah, this is going to be a a different kind of day, so I really should be there for this one. Right. Take these meetings to this day. Right. you know,
2: You mentioned the languages, which I think is a great metaphor, like how many languages there are to
4: speak. I'm going to try and apply that to the languages that a director moves through in in TV in particular.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you ever find, because I've got my suspicions, do you ever find that directors get hired because they're really good on set and making days, maybe don't make the best episodes? But the but, but, you know, it's good. it it, it, it the language of the show was maintained, but like, you, know, you, you fill a couple spots with people like that because of the dynamics of of the show and the politics, and you just need someone that you know can navigate that shit a little bit more importantly than like really knock out a, a super, you know, elevated visual episode if there's
4: room for that.
0: Well, you know, everybody thinks there's room for it now because all of these budgets are outlandish, right? You know, coming up in the days of like three point eight to four point seven million dollar budgets, right? You had to respect that budget, right? So, a very wise person said to me in a twenty two episode order: Seven are going to be great. Seven are going to be good. Five are going to be okay the other ones are going to be in focus and you're going to hear the sound. Right. You know, right. and and because, see, it, it, y- yes to your question, but the tricky thing about that is you can hire that person and the alchemy can be so right on that episode mm. that even with that person, that ele- that episode is elevated. Right. You know, Right, because maybe actors give a little, they give that extra take. They give that they, extra take.
2: Because they fuck with that director, you know what I mean? Or like they, they take a note that they normally wouldn't even They normally it, wouldn't or, pay it, right? Okay, I feel you, I feel you. Or,
0: you know, hell, your editor's on fire, that episode. Right, right. The composer is like on some fucking <laughs> James <laughs> Newton Howard <laughs> shit. Or something, right? Right, right. You just go, God ah, damn, I didn't expect that episode to turn out that way. Right. And then, the reverse. You hire the heavy hitter mm-hmm. and you think like, that episode is gonna take care of itself. And you're like sitting in the editing room going, well, what the... Yeah. yeah. You know? So I, I feel like it's more about alchemy. I feel like you have to do that if you are... If you're amorting your show creating, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. you, you you know how you have to amortize your budget. Production design gets this much per episode. Okay, well, if we can save in stunts over here, I can kind of scoot that money over here. Right. So it's like, I know somebody who can make this episode efficiently. In eight days. So that means I can steal a day for this episode that's going to be the one that's in sweep, sweep, sweep. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, so you'll rob Peter to pay Paul, but you're hoping that the alchemy will kind of... Right. You know.
2: Now, I appreciate your honesty on that. I got one more question before we round third. And again, it's specifically for, for directors. What can a director do, or what has a director done to kind of impress you when coming in to pitch for an episode or a show? And, and by pitch, I mean, pitch is maybe for more of a pilot, episode is more of a, of a conversation. But like, if, if those two distinct things offer a similar answer, like, what is it that, sh- that kind of makes you say, okay, like, I think this person, you know, I'm going to give them the,
0: the keys for nine days to my show? If they're honest about what they don't get. hmm You know, like there's this, this section in the script and I kind of, I think it's this. I'm not sure. Right. You know, and you know, I, I blame it on my background because there have been many days, there are many days when I've been super ignorant of many things. And I go, yeah, I really want to like kind of talk that shit, but I don't know what to talk right. <laughs> This is kind of what I think is going on, but, you know, so I feel like, unfortunately, we all feel like salesmanship is the way when sometimes it's just an honest conversation. Right. You know, and I, you know, and I, and again, what I'm saying, when I say I blame this about on how I came, how it come up, came up. You know, I've been on interviews where I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I'm right for this show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm willing to say it. Right. You know, every rep is mortified when they know that you will say that because, you know, you're supposed to get the job and then you're supposed to make yourself right for the show and all. And I don't, look, man, at the end of the day, I want to be the a greeter at Costco who tells you about. <laughs> blueberry muffins. Like I, when I, I tell people, fuck that, I can work at Costco because they meet the blue collar rules. They have great insurance. Right. They have incredible blueberry muffins. So when I go in, I'm like, I don't, you know, here's what I like about it. Well, let me ask you this. Why take the meeting that you're not serving
2: your right for?
0: Because I'm not sure. Because <laughs> there might be something that they say to me that says, oh, and then, because how can you prepare? This is the problem with most of these meetings. Mm-hmm. How can you be overly prepared for someone you've never met? Right. Right. If we're just being honest. Right. Right? This the, Your question can be applied to dating. Why date somebody you ain't really sure of? Right. Because something may happen in the moment. You never know. And you go, shazam, shit. Yeah. Right? But you and don't. So it's,
2: it's more. It's like it's. It's exploratory.
0: It's exploratory, and everything's yeah. exploratory. There's yeah. something that makes me interested in it, doesn't necessarily mean I'm the right person for. It. Right. You know. So when I go in, I go. Here's what I really, really like about it, and they go, "Oh, yeah. you know, that's a small piece of the show." Mm-hmm. All right. You know. Then what's the big piece? This, right. this, this, and this. Hmm. Okay. Hadn't really thought about that. You know, I'm just right. I just I just try to move in such a way that I don't ever want people to think I'm faking them out. Right. Right.
2: You know. That's that's how you have longevity because they know you're a straight shooter and then they can trust what you say is what you mean. Yeah.
0: So I also live by that rule when someone's coming to sit down with me. Right. You know. So if you're a production designer and you, you're you throwing me all of this stuff and I go, yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great. And they say, well, I'm not sure about this because I couldn't really get a sense of it. Then I'm like, let me tell you. Right. Right. You know, and what I also feel that that does at, the, at that point is by the time we get to set, they know that they can honestly get to an answer Mm -hmm. through our conversations as opposed to having to be you know mad daddy going you know I got this and I got this and I got that and I got that you know what I'm saying play I got it all and I'm like I don't need it all I need one thing and you could have come and asked me what that one thing was
4: yeah I mean it's like the the worst thing in the world is is a, well, not, I, well, I'm not going to say worst things.
2: I can't, I don't know what the hierarchy is, but like, you know, lack of clarity, lack of collaboration, you know what I mean? Like, those are the things that shut down the best work of the director. Yes. You know, because if, if there's no clarity, then it's like, well, I, I'll i go for the big swing, but like, you know, will I be indicted for it? later? <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? And then, And the
0: problem is when they indict you, when they were talking about collaboration, mm-hmm. were they being honest about what right. collaboration was, or was collaboration? I just need this motherfucker to do what I need him to do,
4: right? You know, yeah.
0: the you know when I was on, so I I was on Star, but I left before shooting started. Mm-hmm. I was on True Story, and now
3: this show. You know, one of the things that I do when I'm on set. And I've always done this. You can't tell I'm the showrunner.
0: I'll be over there talking to the grips or I'll be like, you know, asking the camera operator why he chose a certain thing, just out of curiosity. So if I'm talking about collaboration, then I am amongst my collaborators. And I want them to know that we're all moving forward to the same thing. We're all trying to get the same thing done. You're bringing your perspective to it. Why would I hire you to just have my perspective? Right. So if there's a blind spot or if there's something where you kind of need more information, that's when I need needed. Not to sit there and go, I don't understand why you're doing this. After you've done it. <laughs> right. So here's the last two questions, sir. Thank three... you for bearing with me being all over the fucking place.
2: Nah, man. This this is honestly, man, I, I love these conversations best when we're, you know, I don't know where it's going and it's not just me firing off, you know, my prepared idea of where it could go. You know what I'm saying? A little more jazzy.
4: What are three qualities you think Someone needs to make it in this industry.
3: A good sense of self. A good work ethic. And the ability to have grace for
0: yourself when you fuck it all up. Mm. No one has said that, that last one. And that is real
2: as shit. Because you can beat yourself down to the point of, to your earlier kind of, no about it's another way of saying no before other people have said no you know it's a, it's a different version of that it's like you know saying critiquing yourself in ways other people may not be critiquing you mm-hmm. So nah, it's dope and anybody that you think we should i, I take this from my man matt barnes I, all the smoke podcast it's oh,
0: <laughs> funny because i knew you were gonna ask me this question <laughs>
2: Who should we have on this podcast? And then, if
0: you can, you know, make that introduction, you know, that's always right. a, a, a oh. good idea. I mean,
3: listen, I think the world right. of Janine Sherman Mm-hmm. and
0: she made my world. You know what I mean? She gave me, got me, helped me get my first staff gig. Right. I don't need to make an introduction to Tamara Gregory, you know. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
0: I, it's like, A lot of these podcasts are always about the nuts and bolts. Right. And I think, especially for folks of color, because we jump into the fire, the intangibles are so fucking important. Right. The way people make connections away from the thing at hand, even if they're in the middle of it. You know, uh, I think there are a few people that move in Tamara's weight class when it comes to that. Wow.
2: Now, she's awesome. And, and for those, you know, she was a or is a co-EP on Reasonable Doubt. So that was the first time I worked with her. But I've I pitched her when yeah. she was with Tiffany Haddish's company. You know what I mean? Like, and, and she always manages to land on her feet with grace and has some of the best notes on on scripts that just comes from a place of like, what would a person really fucking do? Yeah, you know that does that like you know what what makes the most sense or how do we like elevate this to to the to the themes and the and the you know genre? So
0: And she's equally concerned about a human being as she is for the thing that we're doing, right? Yeah. Right. Ben Watkins. All right. All right. Big, All right. Big Ben. Is is one of the heavy hitters on our side of town, Malcolm Spellman, Mm. who is a Malcolm, his wife Michelle, you know, Michelle and her husband Malcolm. (laughs) 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 We all came down here together, yeah, from from the bay, and they are my support team and are incredible in what they do. And Nichelle was the showrunner for Truth Be Told. Mm -hmm. She also has a stellar resume. And Malk is so fucking unique and individual that, you know, more people should know of it. Yeah. Now, those are awesome. I'm going to take you up on them. I'm
2: going to hit up TV for sure. Oh, get small of them, goddammit. <laughs> I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Well, yo, man, I, this has been incredible, man. And, and just first and foremost, it's like I've, I've, I've known of you much longer than I've known you. And I've never had a chance to just kick it with you like this and learn so much about you. And, and you know, just learning how you came up and makes everything make sense. So I'm sure the folks have, have gotten a lot out of this then, you know, much love and respect, man.
0: Dude, I appreciate you, you know, from, what was it? We were standing in front of the Grays. Yeah, 2017, maybe, 18, yeah. yeah. You know, and Dorian had been telling me, Dorian loves you, man. <laughs> that's, that's my man. But that's, that's a good fella. And, and you know, then meeting you and your missus, you know, was absolutely fantastic. And I've been rooting for you, like, all the way. Well, I, hopefully I see you on set. Sometimes. What are so so? these days, goddamn it? <laughs> you know,
2: for sure. Right. Thank you, brother. Right, brother. Appreciate you. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via let's shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right. That was episode 48 with my man Charles Murray. I hope you enjoyed the things that my man from Gary, Indiana had to say. Next week, we will be welcoming Mr. Anton Cropper, director, producer. Uh, This brother has been on all the shows. He's hired me for a a few jobs and I, I really enjoyed talking to him. And he's just a great dude, man. Like, Somebody that I kind of knew of early on, met a little bit later, and and admire. So tune in for episode 49 next week with director Anton Cropper. And as always, in the meantime, stay
3: safe, spread love, and keep creating.